Well, this morning is sort of a part two uh, to last Sunday, and uh, what I want to do this morning is, is, and what I want to turn our hearts to this morning is um, what the Reformation means for us today in terms of what, it, what we have to do today to sort of maintain the spirit of the Reformation and whether the Reformation is, is valid in our generation, or this idea of uh, being reformed but always reforming, that the Reformation is never really over. The reality is that, the, as we talked about last week, the, the, the challenge today is that it's not the same as it was 500 years ago. 500 years ago, the Reformation was necessary, and the challenge that the Reformation faced was a, a monolithic kind of religion that was imposing one truth upon uh, much of European society, and uh, that salvation had to come through that church and those ideas. The, the ideas of the Reformation are needed today, but not because of that, but because we actually face the exact opposite problem today. The different challenge that we have in uh, the 20th and 21st century is syncretism or pluralism or the idea that there are hundreds of different religions, there are hundreds of different faiths, there are hundreds of different interpretations uh, of, of the gospel. And uh, you can pick whichever one you want, and they're all valid. And uh, so we're not in need of the Reformation because we're facing one monolithic church and one monolithic idea, but rather just the opposite. We need the Reformation and the guarding of the gospel and the return to Scripture because we face hundreds of religions and a plurality of of religions that all claim equal validity and everybody says they all work the same. And we know that that's not true. And so the text for today that I'm going to take is 2 Timothy uh, 1, 6 to 14. And... uh, in 2 Timothy 1, 6-14, uh, Paul's going to talk about really the spirit of the Reformation, the heart of what it means to be reformed and always reforming, to be constantly guarding the gospel, guarding the good deposit and what that means for us today. Uh, so let me pray. Father God, uh, we are now anxious and looking forward to opening up your word. And you have, by your Holy Spirit, spoken through the Apostle Paul, And as he has spoken to Timothy, he speaks to us and he speaks to the church. And so, Lord, we want to, as we did last week, remember the reformation that took place and not forget the sacrifices that were made to give us the freedom that we have today. But then not to be complacent and not to drift, but to heed your word and to hold fast to the truth of the gospel, which is true for all time. And, Lord, that we would be faithful in that this day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So 2 Timothy 1, 6 to 14, I'll just read the text through, and as you follow along, then we'll begin to unpack it and see what the Apostle Paul is saying here uh, to his young protege, Timothy. He says, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For the Spirit of God, the, for the Spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. 
That is why I am suffering as I am. And yet this is no cause for shame, because I know whom I have believed, and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. What you have heard from me keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. And so 2 Timothy is a very significant book. They're all significant, okay? All the books of the Bible are significant, not just 2 Timothy. But there's a uniqueness to the significance of each book of the Bible. They're significant for different reasons. And the unique significance of 2 Timothy is that this is Paul's final letter. Okay, this is essentially his final words inspired by the Holy Spirit and preserved for us that he has written to Timothy and to the church and to us. And so this is kind of like his his last will or his, the final words before his death. And so they are sort of imbued for me with a unique significance because of that. And here the Apostle Paul is bestowing on Timothy, who's a young pastor who he has, as he says, laid his hands on him, led him to the gospel, trained him up to be a pastor and to be an elder. And Paul is bestowing on Timothy the charge or the purpose or the mission of a faithful Christ follower. This is something that is not just for Timothy. This is something for Christ followers. And the same charge that the reformers took with their life in their hands. Okay, when you think of the Reformation, as we talked about last Sunday, and the challenges they faced and the persecution and the shame and the suffering that the early reformers faced, this was the charge that they were heeding from the Apostle Paul, that they would keep the pattern of sound teaching, that they would guard the good deposit that was entrusted to them. And we have that same charge today. God calls us, whatever the cost, to enduring loyalty to the gospel. And in this text, we learn from Paul what's involved in a life of loyalty to the gospel. We learn about the cost of a life to dis- of, of loyalty to the, to the gospel, the disciplines and the confidence of living a life loyal to the true gospel. And so we're going to look at each of those three things that kind of get unpacked from this scripture here as we look at what Paul has written. And the first one is the cost of enduring loyalty. He says there, for the spirit of God, the spirit God gave us does not make us timid or um, as another translation would say um, that we have not been given a spirit of fear, but give but has given us power and love and self-discipline discipline. And so Paul says, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. And so Paul starts out talking about the cost. There is going to be shame and there's going to be suffering if you stand up for the truth of the gospel or the truth of the scripture. God's given us this spirit, not of fear, but of power, love, and discipline. And you're going to need that power, love, and discipline because there's a cost to standing firm. And Paul knows the temptation to be ashamed was real. Paul knows the temptation to avoid suffering was real. It was a real temptation for Paul to avoid that shame and suffering. And he knows it's going to be a real temptation for Timothy to avoid the shame and suffering of standing up for the gospel. And Paul knows and the Holy Spirit knows that it is a real temptation for us to try to avoid the shame and the suffering that comes for standing firm for the truth of the gospel in scriptures. Now, in Paul's day, the shame that came from following uh, the gospel or, or, or teaching uh, the faith that he believed, the shame came from the fact that he was following a crucified Savior. Okay, and in Paul's day and, and today too, when you talk about God, people said, well, 
So your God is actually been crucified as a criminal and he was hung as a cross on the cross naked and people mocked him and he was put to death this is your god that you're telling me that we are supposed to serve and so there was a shame that came from the fact that paul was teaching a gospel of a crucified christ and the suffering came in paul's day from powerful forces that were opposed to his message of a king with a greater authority than rome And so Caesar and Herod and all the other authorities hated the message of Christianity and the message of Paul because he said that there was a greater king and that our allegiance is to him. And so the forces of suffering from Paul's day were this sort of the oppression of government and the oppression of of kingly forces. And during the Reformation period, as we talked about, the suffering came from this monolithic medieval church that wanted political and cultural control. And that's where the suffering came for the reformers. Today, as we work and live in an increasingly secular world, the shame and suffering comes not primarily from government sources or from a monolithic church that is opposed to the gospel that we're preaching, but from a culture that celebrates worldly values. The shame and the suffering that we face in the 20th and 21st centuries has been that this is a culture that does not join us in what we celebrate. They celebrate values and they celebrate uh, things that are different than what God calls us to celebrate. And so the shame and the suffering comes from our workplaces that enforce policies that deliberately strike against biblical values. The suffering and the shame in our time comes from family members and friends who are devoted to whatever the fashionable worldview of the day is. And if we disagree with that fashionable groupthink of the world right now that culture has bought into, then we're outcasts and we are you know, not considered, you know, to be part of the the crowd and, and going along with what culture says. And so shame and suffering comes from those sources. And so the temptation is real for us at dinner parties and around campfires just to keep our opinions to ourselves, right? The the temptation is just, you know, don't speak out on abortion. Don't talk about pornography. Don't, you know, don't talk about this issue of of marriage or a dozen other cultural ideologies. And we just keep those things to ourselves because we know if we bring them up at the dinner table or if we bring them up in conversation with our coworkers, we are going to be on the outside looking in. We're going to be ostracized because we hold opinions different than the culture. And so the temptation to avoid shame is very real. To avoid the embarrassment of being labeled or the embarrassment of not being hip and sophisticated, of being thought weird, right? Or, or the worst insult of all, to not be intellectual, right? Because it's all the smart and wise and bright people of the world who have decided the, the ideologies of culture and what the flavor of the month is this month. And so if you disagree with that, then you're unintellectual. You're a hick. You're an out, you know, you just, you're backwards. And so there's a real temptation and I get it. I I know for a fact, actually, a fair number of people that this was actually sort of the last barrier. This was the last excuse before they came to Christ, right? They actually really wanted to be a Christian, but they didn't want to be weird, right? And they looked at Christianity and they said, all those Christians are so weird and I really love Jesus and I see what he's done and I, I want to be a Christian, but do I have to be weird to be a Christian, right? And the answer is yes, you have to be weird to be a Christian. Culture's not going to agree with you, okay? But what Paul is saying here is embrace the weirdness, okay? Embrace the fact that you're going to be different and don't be ashamed. Join me in persecution, You're going to be different than the world because this gospel, this truth, this person, Jesus Christ, is going to transform you. 
And when that transformation starts to happen, you're going to get farther and farther and farther away from the world, and they're going to think you are weirder and weirder and weirder. Right? You're going to be different than the world. And you know what the world does? Is the world mocks and bullies anyone who is different than them. Not much different than any grade school playground. You are different than us, and therefore we are going to mock you and shame you and beat you up. Because the world cannot handle people who think differently than them. And so as Christians, we should not crave the affirmation of an insecure culture who demands that everyone agrees with them, and if you don't agree with us, you will be attacked. You will be taken down in social media. You'll be taken down in the news. You'll be taken down around the dinner table. Because you think differently than the world, we are going to attack you. Instead, as Christians, Paul says, embrace the suffering. Join me in suffering. Embrace the weirdness and don't be ashamed of it. Now, you don't have to flaunt it, but don't hide it, right? And this, this standing up for the gospel and guarding the good deposit and, and joining Paul in the persecution and in the suffering and in the shame can make itself known in very small ways, right? It means bow your head and pray in a restaurant. Go ahead and read the Bible on a park bench or on your lunch break at work, right? The cultural shame and suffering that God calls most of us to face is very minor, but I don't want to underestimate or wave off the very real cost that comes for many of us who live out our loyalty to the gospel in several different ways. In family, I understand that if we stand firm for the gospel, if we join Paul in the persecution and suffering for living out and speaking out faithfully for the gospel then that can bust up family relationships. I know that it can. You won't see eye to eye on divorce or abortion or politics and laws or even on family interactions and dynamics, and that will cause alienation and hurt. And Paul says, this is what we are called to in the Christian life, to not be ashamed of that and not hide or run from it. Or at work, especially any job right now in our culture today, any job with government oversight, uh, in the education system, in the healthcare system, anything like that. We have people sitting here today at Lakeside that need extra prayer and extra encouragement and counsel and support from the rest of us because day by day and week by week, their passion to teach or their passion to care for the sick and the pregnant or the dying is compromised by policies and laws that either force them to comply in setting their faith aside on the job or force them to declare themselves opposed to the practices and be identified in their workplace as those weird people that don't go along and be labeled by the system. And they do that. I know there's people here that in their workplace they have had to take a stand for what they believe in Scripture with their coworkers, with their bosses, whatever, and praise God that they're not ashamed. And do you face these temptations to just keep the Bible put away, to skip prayer in the restaurant because it's embarrassing to be seen praying, to just stay quiet at the dinner parties, to just do your job, whatever is asked of you, and just try to separate it from your faith and stay quiet? The shame and the persecution that we face now and that we know is small compared to the rest of the world. It's small compared to what the reformers had to face 500 years ago. We're not burnt at stakes. We're not drowned. We're not thrown in jail. But around that wor the world, that will happen this week. Those things will happen today in countries around the world. India is considered a relatively free country. I mean, it's fairly safe for the most part. But last Christmas, 30 Christians were dragged out of a home and beaten for singing Christmas carols 
and four pastors were arrested on false charges just for putting up Christmas lights and a Christmas tree. There's a cost to identifying with Christ Jesus. But Paul says, don't run away from the humiliation. Join in the suffering. There is a cost, but it's worth paying. And so we, ourselves, in our culture, in our neighborhood, in our place where we are, we have to ask for more of his spirit to help us, to help us to love and show self-control, that spirit that he has given us, that we're going to go and be loving and that we're going to have the self-discipline and we're going to live out the shame even when it costs us. But secondly, there's disciplines involved. There's a cost to a life of loyalty to the gospel that we have to understand as believers. And there are disciplines involved of a life of loyalty to the gospel. Paul says we've been given a spirit of self-control. Now, why does he say that? Disciplines are are tasks or or patterns of life that we put upon ourselves in order to be able to attain certain goals, right? The the Winter Olympics are coming, coming up in February. You know, I'm kind of excited about this. I like the Winter Olympics, especially those guys that like, they go off the ramp and they jump up in the air and then they do like a thousand flips and then land again. And I look at that and I think, how do you practice that, right? Like, do you just, like, it's the first time. You're probably not going to land it, but just go ahead, right? And uh, I guess you got to start small and work your way up. But it just blows my mind how they practice that and not kill themselves. But in order to do that, right, or, or, or anything in the Winter Olympics, it, it, I think anyone here would agree it's obvious that to compete at an Olympic level you know, say speed skating even. You know, take something safe that we could sort of understand and see ourselves doing, right? But even to compete in speed skating, say, at the Olympics, it, it requires a pattern of life. It requires a set of practices and that conditions us to be able to withstand the realities of that sport, right? To race swiftly and to race well without tiring. It would be really strange of us to think that someone would be able to stay competitive in Olympic speed skating without having discipline and practices in their life that make that possible. And so to live a life loyal to the gospel also requires discipline. It would be silly for us, I think, in the same way to think that people are going to stand strong for the gospel without some sort of personal self-discipline and practices in their life that strengthen them in that standing firm. In 2 Timothy 1, 13-14, he says, Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. And so there's two disciplines there that the Apostle Paul gives us that he says this is how you stay reformed and always reforming. This is how you are constantly renewing yourself and realigning yourself with the gospel so that you can stand firm and not be ashamed and not fear persecution or suffering. There's two disciplines that I expect in your Christian life, Timothy. First of all, he says, follow the pattern of sound words. Or follow the pattern of sound teaching. This is teaching or doctrine or words without defect or without failing. It's healthy teaching. And the teaching that Paul had and that we have is the word of God passed on to us by the Holy Spirit. And that he gave to Timothy and gives us as a model to follow. A pattern where we're continually living this out in our life. Each generation of Christians, understand this, Every generation of Christians is not called to come up with something new or to discover some new idea. And this is the problem that we need this sort of reformation in our spirit in us today. Because right now, the spirit of today is there's lots of novelty in Christianity. There's lots of novelty in our life or our, our, our faith journey that the world wants to put us on. 
But each generation of Christians is not called to come up with something new or to discover some new idea. If someone's preaching something to you and they tell you that they have a new revelation from God or that God has told them, oh, my scripture didn't mean that. When I said it that way in the Bible, this is what I actually meant by it. You know, it meant something different than what Christianity has been teaching for all these 2,000 years. When, when you hear that, then you want to be very, very careful. Or if they cannot show you plainly in Scripture where God teaches what they believe, then they're on dangerous ground because there's no Christian generation that's ever been called on to follow a pattern of novelty or something new. When the Reformation took place, Luther and Calvin and Hus and Zwingli, they were not creating something new. It was not a new religion. It was not a novelty. Having the Bible finally open before them and Scripture finally in their own language, they were returning to the pattern of sound teaching that had been lost. They were in fact returning to creeds that the church was first established on in the first 500 years. The Nicene Creed, the, the, Cal- uh, the Chalcedonian Creeds. Those early church creeds were what they were returning to and of course returning to Scripture. But now we live in a culture that loves novelty. Right? The reformers faced a culture that was locked under one monolithic church and had lost its way. The challenge we face today isn't one monolithic church, but it's the insistence that every possible faith is equally valid. We live in a culture of novelty, that there is a new faith, a new religion, a new interpretation of God, a new way forward, a new way to hear His voice. Uh, there's one God, there's hundreds of gods, there's thousands of gods. Your God, the world is God, creation is God, there is no God. There's all these different worldviews, a thousand flavors of novelty, and we're supposed to accept them all. Christianity with hell, Christianity without hell, Christianity where everybody's saved, Christianity where only 144,000 are saved. Jesus is God, Jesus is man, Jesus isn't even needed. Allah is God, we're God. You know, take your pick, there's all these different flavors of novelty And yet we still have the same challenge that our Reformation fathers had. What is the one pattern of sound teaching that we have to stick to? Lots of people feel all kinds of things about Jesus. Lots of people write songs about Jesus. They write books about Jesus. They say they worship Jesus, but that doesn't mean they're living a life loyal to Jesus and to the gospel unless they're always striving to conform to the pattern of life that comes from sound, healthy, true teaching from Scripture. If you say that you love Jesus, but you ignore what his word says, that's not loyalty to the gospel or to Jesus. You can't say, oh, I love you, Jesus, but I'm not going to conform my life to your teaching. I'm going to follow the pattern. I'm not going to follow the pattern of your words. I'm going to follow the pattern of what I think and what I like. And I'm not going to guard your words or guard your teaching. I'm just going to let them be under attack by others and let churches and and governments and whoever just change scripture however they want to change it or interpret it however they want. That's not the pattern that we're called to. During the Reformation, these reformers conformed their lives to Scripture. They, they changed the practice of their faith. They defended the truth of Scripture against error. And so we ask ourselves, looking around our country today, are churches doing that? If we compare ourselves to the reformers 500 years ago, are our churches defending the Scripture against error and against attack? Or are too many churches today becoming enamored with false teaching? Are they being creative with the doctrine of who God is? Are they toying with ideas like God isn't really completely sovereign, that he doesn't exactly know what's going to happen next, and he's hoping that we will choose him, and he hopes that he can save us by our decisions, right? That God maybe takes on many forms. Are we toying with ideas like this in our churches? Or that God has not really said what he said? 
God didn't really. Jesus isn't really. Sin isn't really. And as soon as churches start to believe those lies about God and drift away from the pattern of sound teaching, then it is very easy from there to drift away from the gospel and to compromise the gospel and to fall completely out of historic Christian church. So you have, in fact, today many, many churches that claim Christianity and nothing in their teaching would conform to historic Christian faith or to Scripture. But with that drift in our culture, you know, like the frog in the hot water pan slowly heating up, generations can come and go and people don't even notice they no longer have the gospel. Reminds me of Samson. The Holy Spirit left him and he didn't even know. I think that happens in our churches. What's true of churches is true of us as well. When we see it happening in denominations and we see it happening in churches, we have to remember that we are reformed and always reforming because it can happen in us again. If we give up that spirit of the Reformation of not constantly aligning ourselves to Scripture and constantly submitting our lives to the pattern of found teaching, and we start to question, well, did God really say, like the snake said in Genesis 3.1, did God really say? Then it's a short journey from there to, well, why shouldn't I? Or why don't I do whatever I want? Paul says to Timothy and to the church, there's a pattern of sound teaching. Don't accept anything else. Don't align your practice to anything else except the gospel and to scripture. The second discipline, that's the first discipline. The second discipline is to guard the gospel so that we follow the pattern of sound teaching in our own lives, but then we guard the good deposit. We guard the gospel itself. Something precious has been given to us as believers. The gospel and Christ Jesus is a treasure that you protect and you cherish. The good deposit is the good news to all mankind about Jesus Christ. It's His birth and His life. It's His sacrifice on the cross and the resurrection from the dead, all for the purpose of removing the obstacle of sin between us and our relationship with God. It's about removing us from darkness into light. It's about rescuing us from lies that chain us into truth that sets us free. It's about rescuing people from despair into hope. It's about bringing healing into our lives and to begin our transformation into our final, glorious, eternal form in the presence of God forever. And that, all of that, is not based on our works or our goodness or our effort, but by receiving it as a free gift of God that we trust and cherish and love Jesus for being our rescuer. That's the gospel. That's the good deposit that we have, that we have to guard that message. And Paul repeats the gospel. He summarizes it, what I just said there. He, he puts a summary in here, so there's no question about what he's talking about. In verses 9 and 10, he says, He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of His own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. That's the gospel. Paul says, this is the good deposit that you have to guard. This reality. It's a treasure, but it's a treasure that's vulnerable to distortion. And this gospel, this good news, as we know in our culture, as we've just talked about, it can be belittled, it can be ignored, it can be perverted, it can be sub- subjugated. It, can, it, it will never ultimately fail. We know that God's word never ultimately fails, but we can do the gospel harm by our inaction or even by our action. And so I'll just give you some examples of, of, of what I think Paul means here or, or what we could get from Scripture in terms of what it means to guard the gospel or not guard the gospel. And, and just see if, if you can see in your own life and in my own life, even as you look at me, 
whether we've failed or I've failed to guard the gospel in some, some, some ways that undermine it. We fail to guard the gospel when we exalt human philosophies above the gospel or invest them with greater authority than the gospel. I mean, we know our whole culture does that, but we as Christians, can we somehow sometimes fail to guard the gospel because we buy into a human philosophy and we esteem it or exalt it above the gospel? It's not that all human philosophies are wrong. All truth is from above, right? And if you go back and mylikeside.ca, you can find the sermon, right? Even a blind squirrel finds a nut sometimes, right? And the... And the, and the God has given His truth to the world. And, but when we exalt human philosophies above the gospel or we give them greater authority than the gospel, then we are failing in guarding it. And we do that sometimes as a church and as a people. We undermine the gospel when we minimize the seriousness of our sin or call sin by other names to excuse ourselves. Boy, who hasn't done this? When we act as if we don't need a Savior to rescue us, we're not guarding the gospel. right? If, if, if we minimize sin then the importance of the gospel diminishes. We contradict the gospel when we let our hearts be drawn to the idols of this world, when we cherish and we love and we treasure the things of this world can offer more than we treasure Christ. We're failing to guard the gospel. We call the gospel a lie when we think and live legalistically as if our works, or listen carefully, or more often, when we live as if other people's efforts are required for them to be righteous and have righteous standing before God. Right? Sometimes we, we live as if we have to work really hard for our righteousness, as if God's going to be pleased with us when, when we do good things and we call the gospel a lie when we think and live legalistically, but even more so when we think other people should be living legalistically, that they are not very full of grace or they're not very forgiven or they're not very good Christians because I can see how they're living and they should live the way I think they should be living as a Christian. We do harm to the gospel when we live that way for ourselves and for others because the gospel is is that we all need grace and none of us are going to earn anything before God but he has already done everything out of his love for us. And so if we live in a way that says other people have to perform for their righteousness for ourselves or that we have to perform for God, we do harm to the gospel. We ignore the gospel when we wallow in condemnation and self-pity over our sin. That is, when we refuse to believe God's promise to forgive us and cleanse us because of Christ's death. Do you ever think about that? Okay, there's no nobility. I mean, you should feel guilt and remorse and repent for sin, but there is no extra nobility for you to wallow in what a sinful person you are. When we wallow in our sinfulness, then we are not doing justice to the gospel where Jesus has set us free from our sin. We're not living in the glory of that forgiveness. We misrepresent the gospel when we treat others self-righteously and withhold the grace and forgiveness that we also need for ourselves. So we have to understand that when I talk about guarding the gospel, I'm not just saying, you know, you have to stand up or I have to stand up here and make sure that we're preaching scripture or that you have to express the gospel in a very specific way with people. Or if you hear the gospel misrepresented, you know, that you have to correct it. That is guarding the gospel. But from this list, what I hope that you see is that we have to guard the gospel in our own lives to make sure that we're actually living out the truth of what the implications of the gospel are. Because when we don't fully live out the reality of the gospel, we do it harm and we're not guarding it. And it takes a purposeful, sustained effort and right thinking to do that, to be conformed to the teaching of Scripture. 
The gospel is not a message that saved us sometime in the past, or, but it's a new truth that now forever defines us and we live out our life by. It shapes how we view the word and, and how we view each person and how we answer to the world. And so it has to be guarded from distortion and apathy and being forgotten or unused in our life. We guard the gospel when we live it out as salt and light before the world because the alternative is that there is no gospel life being lived out or there is no example. The alternative in Halliburton is that nobody is living out the light of the gospel as an example before people. The alternative in Halliburton is that there is no love and mercy and grace and forgiveness and hope and truth and light. The alternative is that there is just despair and darkness and that there is no model for the gospel. And so we are meant to live it out and that's how we guard it. We're the remnant now. We are the few that guard it by living it out in spite of the shame or in spite of persecution. Finally, the third thing is the the confidence that we have in enduring loyalty to the gospel. What hope can we have as Christians in remaining steadfast to our commitment to the gospel? What Paul makes clear here is that what is most essential to our loyalty is not what we do, but what God has already done. Look at me, verse 8 and verse 14. Verse 8 first, rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Or verse 14, by the Holy Spirit that dwells within us, guard the good deposit. That's the ESV translation. The NIV puts the the, by the Holy Spirit at the end of the, the sentence but by the Holy Spirit that dwells within us, guard the good deposit. Paul isn't building up our self-confidence, but our God-confidence. He says in verse 9, He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of His own purpose and grace. And so Paul says to Timothy and to us and to the church, he says, it's God's purpose and grace that he saved us and sustained us. This is the foundation of our confidence that we can have in the gospel and confidence that we can actually hold to the pattern of sound teaching, the confidence that we can guard the good deposit that's entrusted to us. We are confident that we are going to be able to do that as Christians because we are not guarding and teaching something that we invented or that we have to have the power to sustain, that we are guarding what God has given us as a good deposit and He's given us by the power of God and by the power of the Holy Spirit the strength to live and to declare. As Christians, we have to understand this. We are not declaring a Savior that we nominated. We are not declaring the glories of a Savior, or we are declaring the glories of a Savior who was crucified before the foundation of the world. Okay, Christianity is not just a good idea that we came up with. Christianity is not a movement that is somehow sustained by our willpower. Christianity is the truth of what God has done before the foundation of the world. And so we guard it and we live it out and we follow this pattern of sound teaching, not by our own strength, but by the strength that is given to us by God. And so Paul says, Timothy, let that truth strengthen you. When the government seems so powerful, when the false prophets and the teachers are attacking you, when the Facebook posts turn nasty, right, or the friends are angered by your loyalty to right moral choices, remember in those moments, remember the truth, the Savior that you are serving. Remember Jesus. He abolished death for you. He brought life for you through His body on the cross. We're not living out this life of guarding a nice idea and a good sentiment. We've been entrusted with the only saving message for mankind. The only hope for any of us is this message of who Jesus is. And so that's our confidence. When we ask ourselves, where is our confidence? It's in the message of the gospel. That this is salvation for mankind. 
what upholds us in our days of shame and suffering, this is what we preach to ourselves. There is no cause for shame. Paul says, that is why I am suffering as I am. And yet this is no cause for shame because I know whom I have believed and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Now what what guard is Paul talking about here? Just to be clear, unpack this correctly. He's not talking about guarding the gospel here. What has Paul given God that he entrusts God to guard until that day? Himself, right? His soul, his spirit, his eternal life. He says, I don't worry about shame. I don't worry about suffering because this is not me anymore. This is not my power, my strength. This is I've entrusted to God and God is going to guard what I've entrusted to Him until the day comes. And so this text is is one of several why we say that we are reformed but always reforming because what Paul is talking about here is that there is always in every generation, there is always in every Christian this purpose that we must follow the pattern of sound teaching and that we must guard the good deposit of the gospel that's been entrusted to us. Unguarded, the church will drift. Unguarded, the gospel will be perverted or subjected. It'll be literally put under by culture. It will not ultimately ever fail. But we in our generation, we as followers of Christ, will be held into account for how we treasured, how we cherished, how we lived out the sound teaching, how we guarded the gospel in our lives and in our generation. So the spirit of the Reformation is as needed today as it was 500 years ago. Not as a fight against some monolithic government or monolithic church. The spirit of the Reformation, that we are reformed and always reforming, always conforming ourselves to Scripture, always guarding the truth of the one gospel that's been true for 2,000 years and will be true for 2,000 more. But to stand against the tide of a culture that would sweep the gospel aside or that would bury it under a wave of indifference or compromise, that's the challenge we face. And so the, the fight, so to speak, or the battle, so to speak, of the Reformation is far from over. Because every generation we face this challenge that we must follow the pattern of sound teaching, that we must guard the gospel because the word of God yet stands. What is true remains true and our salvation is unchanged. It is in Christ and Christ alone. 